0: Welcome back, everyone, to Behavioral Science for Brands, a podcast where we bridge the gaps between academia and marketing. Every other week, we sit here and we decode the science behind some of America's most successful brands. I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Shelton. Today, we're talking notepads, shutter clicks, and spreading innovation. Let's get into it. So, Richard, today we're sitting here talking about Apple Computers. This summer, named the most valuable company in the world, valued at $3 trillion. At the end of 2022, one out of every two smartphones in Americans' pockets were made by Apple. And so while there may not be anything new to say about Apple, given how much coverage it's gotten, For us as brand guys who care not just about ad campaigns, but care about building companies that thrive in the world, Apple is really an interesting case study for us both about thinking about the whole brand. And to me, it's more than just amazing innovation which they've been at the top of their game for 20 years. And it's more than just amazing ad campaigns, which they've had many. It's the way they sew everything together for a consistent, repeatable brand experience that I think is one of Apple's most sterling achievements. The brilliance for me is that the experience using the product matches the way that it's portrayed at every touch point. So Apple is first and foremost selling an idea, a mindset that everything should work together in one ecosystem. So whether you're holding the, an iPhone, working on a Mac, or have the Apple Watch on your wrist, everything works in one ecosystem. The same when you try to order from them, whether you're buying online, in store, of, on the phone, it's all one ecosystem. And you can really feel that when you walk into a retail store. It feels different Mm. than other computer, other technology centers. And famously, Microsoft created Microsoft stores trying to compete with Apple using the same lightwood interiors and the same clean and crisp retail environment. And it just didn't connect in the same way because it was just one element of the ecosystem that Apple's selling. One universal premium yet approachable brand that makes people feel excited about technology, but also uh, welcome to be a part of this innovation has really been a hallmark of what has made Apple so successful. And at the end of the day, building brands is really about creating value for people in their lives and then having them trust that when they come back time over time, they're going to continue to get value in exchange for taking money out of their wallets and giving it to us. Steve Jobs has openly thought about human psychology. He wrote about it. He talked about it. And specifically, how to get people to change and try new things, so for us as behavioral science enthusiasts, there's a lot to get excited about with Apple. Uh, Richard, you know that's the opening, that's the setup. What's your take on how Apple has used behavioral science?
1: Well, you made a point there around that Steve Jobs was a master of encouraging people to try new things. Um, one of the tactics here he, he Harness from psychology was an idea called, or from design called skeuomorphism So his argument was that there are competing demands in people's lives, that they're both attracted to the new and they also fear it. So he said there's neophilia and neophobia. We both feel that we're scared of the new, you know, it might be a danger, but we also are attracted to it because it might bring rewards. So his argument, and this was summed up best by um, an Atlantic writer called Derek Thompson, he said the goal to sell something is if it's familiar, make it surprising, and if it's surprising, make it familiar. (laughs) Now, Steve Jobs was a master of that. If you think back to the original iPhone design, when the iPhone was a surprising new bit of technology, they did all sorts to try and make that feel a little bit more familiar.
0: Things like when you open the Notes app on the first iPhone, the app showed a lined yellow piece of paper, just like a normal legal pad, spiral lining in the binding, right? Handwriting instead of computer type when you tapped out the letters.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that might feel like just a random design choice, But by comparing this new technology to physical, real-world, existing alternatives, it gave us an element of comfort. So when the iPhone was shockingly new, you needed to have these familiar reminders. But what happened over time was, as people became used to their iPhone, the need for those familiar reminders was minimized. And you see from the design, it's become more and more abstract that spiral notebook you mentioned that's gone you don't get that any longer you don't get font that looks like handwriting is much more crisp and clean now
0: and you know where the notes app you could at least start to understand i think it used to be called notepad too i'm not sure about that but with the notes app it made sense what it might be think about trying to teach people what deleting a file meant and in the original Macs, it was a trash can on the computer desktop, you would drag a file into it, you would hear the sound of crunching paper, and you would see it literally animate a piece of paper being crunched up and thrown into a trash bin.
1: Yeah, So that's an interesting example because they're not just using visual symbols, they're accompanying that with familiar sounds. I can imagine though some people are sceptical of this. Mm. And one of the things I love about behavioural science is... None of this is ever just speculation. The great thing about behavioral science is everything has to come back to peer-reviewed experiments. But there were quite a few experiments that back up this principle of what might be known as optimal newness. So the study in question comes from Karen uh, Lakhane, 2014 study. Uh, Lakhane goes out and recruits 142 world-class researchers, and he shows them a variety of different research proposals. and they have to score these research proposals on their potential impact. And what Lacani had done beforehand was group these research proposals into themes. So according to, ha- were they very novel, quite novel, quite familiar, or very familiar? And what Lacani found was that the very novel research proposals got scored very low, but likewise, the very familiar ones Got scored very low as well. Interesting, yeah. It was again this sweet spot of optimal newness that people want enough reassurance of a little bit of familiarity, but with not not so much that it becomes boring, or on the other side, they don't want so much novelty that it becomes untethered and scary. So, trying to work out what's your existing position, what's the technology they're introducing. If it's surprising, make it familiar. as as Derek Thompson would say, or if it's familiar, try and add a dash of surprising.
0: feels wildly applicable to so many brands and so many marketers who are bringing new products to the market, you know, either new categories or new products within existing categories, a roadmap for how they might think about this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: It's something I think uh, people who pitch films are very good at it. Yeah, the alien supposedly described as jaws in space. You know what is the what's the proxy that you can use to immediately establish uh, what your product represents?
0: So this idea of finding the sweet spot, Richard, between you know new but the familiar is not a concept that Steve Jobs came up with first. This is a long-standing principle that has quite a bit of documentation.
1: Yes, there are examples of designers and inventors through history using the same approach famously there was a, a designer called raymond Lowy. he was responsible for i think the bp and shell logos the lucky stripe cigarette mm-hmm. packaging a greyhound bus design all sorts of uh, beautiful inventions and he had a fra- famous phrase of most advanced yet acceptable so he was trying to work out well when did that neophobia so when did that neophilia Tip into neophobia. Or before him, you go back to Edison. Edison never had a phrase for what he did, but he had the same principle when he was trying to encourage American households to switch to electricity rather than using you know, naked flames and, and, and gas. Everything he did with uh, electric light bulbs was to try and make them familiar. So if you think about it, an electric light bulb doesn't really need a light shade. The purpose of those light shades was to link them back to candles. People had had those light shades to stop gusts of winds guttering out the candles. They repeated it, not because the technology required it, but... To make it familiar. Yeah, made it familiar. He even capped the wattage of the bulbs. The technology was there already when he launched to be brighter, but he capped the brightness at the same level as a as a candle to try and make it again more familiar. So great observers of human nature have noticed this tension between neophilia and neophobia long before Jobs or even Raymond Lowy.
0: So striking this balance is one thing that Apple has done extremely well for a long time, but it's not the only interesting behavioral science principle they're using to help succeed.
1: No, Apple of all the brands that we've discussed are probably the one who most consistently use a broad variety of psychological insights. So the other thing they do very well is when it comes to their copywriting, they are masters of using concrete language rather than abstract language. The value of this can be shown in a 1972 study by a university of Western Ontario psychologist called Ian Begg. So very, very simple study. He, recruits a small group of people and he reads out a list of words to them and some of those words are what he calls abstract so subtle facts or basic truth others are what he would call concrete you know these are tangible physical visualizable items square door white horse he then reads these lists out he gives people a few seconds to think about things and then he asks people to write down as many as they can remember. And his key finding is people on average remember 9% of the abstract words, those are the intangible things, but they remember 36%, so four times as many, huge difference, yeah, Yeah. four times as many of the concrete phrases. Now, Begg's argument is vision is the most powerful of our physical senses. So if you use language that can be visualised, it becomes sticky and memorable. But if you use language that can't be visualized, it's too abstract, then that is very, very easy to forget.
0: Yeah. So literally being able to see the concept in your mind when you say yes. it makes it sticky. Yeah. If I
1: say square door, for most people, almost unbidden, a square door will pop up in the mind. Mm-hmm. If I say uh, basic truth, what is there to imagine? You can't
0: picture a truth. So it's that difference between what can be visualized and what can't. And this is really, when you look across so much of product advertising, so much use non-tangible words of things that can't be imagined.
1: Absolutely. This is the norm of how most brands behave. Most brands talk about value, premiumness, trustworthiness, provenance. They use all these pieces of terminology that simply can't be pictured. Now you think back, though, to what? Apple did when they launched the iPod. So, just like every other MP3 player, they wanted to convey the abstract benefit of memory and storage. Now, what most marketers did in that situation, Philips, Sony, Samsung, they all talked about their storage was 128 megabytes. You cannot picture a megabyte, you certainly can't picture 128. So, they fell into the trap of conveying an abstract objective with abstract language and now compare that with Apple. Same abstract objective of memory, but what they did was convert that into much more concrete language. They talked about a thousand songs in your pocket. Now you can picture a pocket, you can imagine a song, and that's why that line became so memorable. So I think something that they have been very good about is recognizing that even though you might have an abstract objective, you can't communicate that directly. You've got to translate into something that's visualizable.
0: And to drive back to why we chose to feature Apple in this episode, if we are pushing innovation, if we are trying to introduce new products in existing categories or whole new categories, having concrete things helps make it more understandable and more memorable to the consumer. Yes, and you,
1: you can see this. It's not, I certainly want to suggest that there was once this problem in the early two thousands with MP three players. Now it's all resolved. Think about cell prone providers. Think about broadband providers. They talk about you know the gigabytes that you get. They're still making this same mistake today. I think it is still something that many memory brands can apply.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we can take this idea, Richard, of concrete and abstract and apply it more than just the copywriting or just the imagery and copy that we use. Um, We were talking before that show started about the concept of fluent devices. Do you want to explain
1: that to everyone? Uh, Absolutely. So there's a big research agency called System One. And one of the research projects they have done is go through the UK equivalent of the EFIS. So in the UK, we have thousands of award entries into what's called the IPI Effectiveness Awards. Very rigorous. Uh, You have to go to great lengths to prove that it was your advertising that drove the success of your brand, often via econometrics. And they've looked at all these entries and they've looked at all the long term campaigns. And one of the most interesting findings was campaigns that have what they call a fluent device tend to be much more successful than campaigns that don't have a fluent device. When they use this term, fluent device, what they mean is a character or mascot who represents the brand, who is integral to the, the drama of the ad. So example would be Tony the Tiger from Frosted Flakes. Yeah, or uh, Geico Gecko. There you go. The key thing here is that the character isn't just a logo at the end. He or she is what the drama revolves around. It's a, it's a crucial part of, of the ad all the way through. And to bring this back to concreteness, think about what some of those brands are trying to convey a great value for Geico Gecko or great taste, those are abstractions. Those are very forgettable. But what we can remember is a lizard. We can remember a tiger. If you can create a symbol for your brand Mm. that you pack with some of these intangible attributes, that's turning abstract into concrete.
0: Yeah, and the effect is that the consumer, the buyer, has a reaction to that character when they might not have a reaction to the actual attributes of the brand itself. Yes, yes. Uh,
1: Unfortunately, even though there's certainly a lot of evidence for the behavioral science insight of concreteness, and there's this new evidence about fluent devices – Unfortunately, another bit of data from System 1, certainly in the UK, is that the proportion of ads using fluent devices is in quite radical decline. Yeah. It's something that we associate with the 1970s, I think, and the the 1980s. You know, if you go back to that era of advertising, the Marlboro Man, the Jolly Green Giant, it was something that was very regular. Yes. But now maybe it feels a bit too simplistic to people working in agencies. But again, what we should be interested in is not whether something is sophisticated or fancy or erudite, but whether it's effective. There's a a growing body of evidence these fluent devices are.
0: Yeah, it, it reminds me of a previous episode where we talked about the principal agent yes, problem. problem. Yeah. yeah, where the principal being the brand has one thing that would be best for it, but the agent being the brand manager or the agency has other things that they're most concerned about, raises and promotions and bonuses, and those two successes are not always aligned.
1: Yeah, I mean, one thing that someone working in marketing wants to believe is that they are a mature sensible person yes. and maybe saying let's use a lizard as our mascot <laughs> or, or a giant green man doesn't feel like we're working in a um sophisticated, know, sophisticated industry yeah. but you know what works is often what's different from what's sophisticated
0: yeah and i think we're talking about a really challenging concept which is how do we take abstract ideas yeah. and make them memorable and okay. readily accessible at the point at the time when somebody's going to make a decision to buy your brand. And these uh, uh, what are they called? Fluent the, devices. The, yeah.
1: I don't know why they gave them such a complicated name. Yeah,
0: <laughs> which which is almost uh, yeah, fighting. Yeah, yes, the Concept yeah, 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 yeah. of fluent
1: device. I mean, it's, they haven't. People aren't talking about them. I think again, it's like the name is so important. It sounds a little bit too academic, but yeah. But the, I think the research is really good. Yeah.
0: yeah. You know, so it occurs to me that using concreteness kind of brings you down to simpler concepts. That's why fluent devices are so effective, because they're simple and and memorable. And there's some data, there's some studies to prove that as well.
1: Yeah, there are studies that suggest if you use unnecessarily complex language, it reflects badly on you. If you use simpler alternatives, it reflects well. So the study in question is probably the greatest academic paper title ever. So I'm ready. It's it. Daniel Oppenheimer again. And the paper is called The Consequences of Erudite Vernacular Utilised Irrespective of Necessity. I have no idea what that means. Nor do I. But then he has colon, <laughs> and then it says, problems with using long words are needlessly. <laughs> so a rare flash of academic humour. <laughs> and what he does in the study, he gets these abstracts of academic articles. So these little... Praises that run at the beginning of the journal articles. Uh, he takes those and he gets people to read them. And generally, those abstracts are overblown in their language. They use unnecessary, convoluted words. So some people read the original abstract with the convoluted, overblown language. Other people read ex- basically the same abstract, but Oppenheimer's replaced the complex words with simple alternatives. And in that second scenario, when that group is asked to rate the intelligence of the author, they rate the intelligence, I think, at 13% more than the original group who saw the complicated version. So Oppenheimer's argument, which runs counter to how most business people behave, is if you use complex language, it doesn't make the audience think you're intelligent. It makes them irritated, confused, and they'll blame you, the writer, of that. If you use simple language, people will assume you're more intelligent and reflects well on you. So one lesson for brands is even if you work in a very important subject matter, finance, healthcare, try and write as simply and plainly as possible.
0: It's not unlike what great creatives will say, which is that it's a reductive act. Keep taking away from the art yeah. until it's the, its most basic and simple form it's kind of the same concept keep removing the complexity of the words until it's the simplest message
1: absolutely it's, it's a theme that you see outside of that industry amongst creatives and George Orwell Ernest Hemingway say the same thing again and again I think yes. Hemingway said something like you know I know all the hundred dollar words I just choose not to use them yeah you know they saw there was a value in plain speaking
0: yeah so, Richard, as we do, we like to do a wrap up at the end of each episode to make sure everyone gets the clear takeaways from each episode. Today, we want people to remember what? Three big things.
1: Firstly, remember the idea of optimal newness. Mm-hmm. Think about the competing drives of neophobia and neophilia. So, think to yourself is my product radical? In which case, then you have to consider ways of making it more familiar. If you have a familiar product, think of ways to make it more surprising. So that's the first principle. The second one is vision's the most powerful of our senses. We struggle to remember abstractions. Make sure the language you're using is as concrete as possible. Make sure people can visualise the words that you're saying. And then the third and final, there is this added benefit of simplicity, that if you use concrete language, you tend to speak simply. And Oppenheimer's study shows that isn't just about boosting understanding levels it also very reflects very well on the communicator you'll be seen as higher status if you use simple words
0: so as we come to a close today we're talking about apple their push to innovation i gotta ask richard mac or pc
1: oh pc i'm completely bewildered by Macs. whenever (laughs) i'm doing a talk and someone tells i'm presenting off a mac i know it's going to go wrong
0: and yet I'm shocked sitting in our room together today, two iPhones, an (laughs) iPad, my Mac laptop, lots of Apple devices surround you, my friend.
1: Yeah, that's totally true. And I've I've got my AirPods as well. (laughs) I do feel a bit of a mug. I think the problem is once you get into Apple... Everything then syncs up. It's, it's gradually, you know, you're slowly sucked into buying everything from Apple. But the one area of I've always resisted is always had a, a PC.
0: He stands apart, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. We'll see how long he can hold yeah. out. Uh, the ecosystem, the push to innovation compels us. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Behavioral Science for Brand podcast. I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Sholton. If you've had the chance to use our behavioral science tips on your brand, please let us know email us at hello at the consumer or connect with us on social media.
1: Behavioral science for brands is brought to you by function growth at ages 2023 newcomer agency of the year function growth uses behavioral science to supercharge growth for direct to consumer brands. They operate across a wide spectrum of services as a one-stop shop and integrated strategic partner for brands with high growth potential Unlike typical agencies, Function Growth leverages shared
0: risk and reward compensation models, meaning they only make money when your brand grows. Reach out to them if you'd like to unlock the power of behavioral science to accelerate
1: growth for your brand.